with Scott Allen. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are in this beautiful world. I am your host, Scott J. Allen, and this is Phrenesis, Practical Wisdom for Leaders. Now, I am a professor of management at John Carroll University in Cleveland, Ohio, USA. In addition, I'm a husband and father of three teens. Now, this is a family endeavor. Will played the intro, Kate voiced the intro, and who knows, you may hear from Emily a little later. I'm also an author, entrepreneur, speaker, and co-founder of the Collegiate Leadership Competition. I love to travel, explore new places with family, and learn from others. Phronesis offers a smart, fast-paced discussion about all things leadership and followership, if we're honest. My guests are scholars and practitioners, and we cover relevant topics and incorporate practical tips designed to help you make a difference in how you lead and live. I am proud to share a few updates. According to Listen Notes, Phronesis is listed as among the top 3% of podcasts in the world because of you. So thank you. In addition, the podcast has two sponsors. First, Phronesis is the official podcast of the International Leadership Association, an association that is near and dear to my heart. ILA brings together leaders and those who teach, study, and develop leadership, advancing leadership knowledge and practice for a better world. Learn more at ila-net.org. My second sponsor is the Bowler College of Business at John Carroll University. At Bowler, we offer several advanced degrees and MBAs, and I'm confident that there's one that will fit your location, interests, and timeline. In fact, our online MBA is ranked as the number one in Ohio and number nine in the United States. We offer international study tours, a contemporary and forward-looking curriculum, and access to senior leaders and flagship organizations. Learn more at business.jcu.edu. You can find links to both sponsors in the show notes. Now, if you like what we're up to, please hit subscribe so you can stay current as we release new episodes each week. You can also share what we're up to with others, friends, colleagues, leaders, teams, students, and others you think will benefit. And now, today's show. Okay, everybody, welcome to the Phronesis Podcast. Thank you for checking in wherever you are in the world. Today, I have Dr. Jonathan Gosling, and he is the Emeritus Professor of Leadership at Exeter University in the UK and a visiting scholar at other universities in Slovenia, at Bled, McGill in Canada, Manash in Australia, Renmin in China, and University West of England in the UK. He has taught and researched leadership for over 30 years and is now an independent academic and consultant at palumbra.com. Current projects include with the Forward Institute promoting responsible leadership in government, NGOs, and business, supporting the frontline leadership of HIV and malaria control programs in Southern Africa, running a series of One Planet Leadership Roundtables for experienced managers, and a new initiative to do the same for full-time students. He hosts writing retreats and this year published the second edition of Exploring Leadership, Individual, Organizational, and Societal Perspectives, co-authored with Richard Bolden and Beverly Hawkins. He represented the UK universities at the Rio plus 20 UN Sustainability Summit and contributes to the greening of management education, for instance, as a co-author of the textbook Sustainable Business, A One Planet Approach. He is also the co-founder of One Planet Education Networks. He worked for many years as a community mediator, co-founded CoachingOurselves.com, and received the ILA's Lifetime Achievement Award in 2021. He is a keen sailor of fast catamarans, and slow cruisers. Sir, thank you so much for being, you know, I'm reading the list of universities and I saw McGill 
And I know, of course, you've written with Dr. Mintzberg. <laughs> the biggest mistake I've made while publishing this podcast is misspelling his name. I published it to the world, and Mintzberg was spelled incorrectly in two spots. <laughs> oh, oh, Henry, I am so sorry. I sent him a note. I said, I hope he didn't notice it. No one noticed it. I was just looking about two weeks later, and I said, huh, that doesn't look correct. <laughs> so I will well, try and spell your name correctly when I publish it to the world. It is so good to meet you. I really, really appreciate your time today. 30 years of exploring this topic of leadership. Uh, before we jump into kind of what you're thinking about recently, though, what else do listeners need to know about you? That's just such a wonderful bio, sir. Well, thank you very much, Scott. It's such a pleasure to meet you, as it were, face-to-face -face across the uh, biosphere somehow, <laughs> bouncing around. I think I've sort of bounced around across the biosphere into my career, actually, as, as well through relationships and connections with people. I, I spent uh, quite a while as a conflict researcher and mediator in the East End of London, a part of the city which was prone to a lot of neighborhood disputes and conflicts between groups of young people and the police and different ethnically defined groups in the, in the 1980s at a time of financial recession and a, a lot of change in the community. And the working hypothesis formulated by a group of mainly religious leaders in the area was that this conflict is expressing a degree of pressure that people are feeling that is misdirected at their neighbors and could more fruitfully be made sense of in ways that would find a resolution to the real issues people are having with living conditions, but also address the political issues that are at the foot of it. So I found myself in my early working life involved with trying to understand what it is that's driving people, energizing them to such extraordinary efforts, often to rather fruitless ends. And in doing that, I learned a lot about where initiative comes from, where leadership comes from, and how kind of reframing the narratives that people are telling themselves and are living by and organizing along in ways that can be more fruitful is a, a really powerful contribution to make. So this, it was a really seven or eight years of work intensely in the inner city in the midst of some very difficult, very difficult economic circumstances and a lot of change in the community who lived there and who was doing well and who was on the up, who was on the down. A lot of change in infrastructure and planning, but people, local people, were not really involved much in that. So it was always a struggle to find purchase on power and influence to organize a coalition of people to see things more or less the same way so they could cooperate enough to get something done and get a decision changed or improved. And that's really where I came to be interested in, ah, leadership has something to do with this. I just envision you seeing this all happening and then wondering, okay, what is behind all of this? What is behind and what is driving these human behaviors to, in some cases, act in ways that aren't in our best interest, in some cases, act in ways that are increasing conflict or increasing strife? 
Fascinating, right? Just absolutely fascinating. I came to the topic in a completely different context, but in a similar way. I had a supervisor who on Thursday mornings, we we read the leadership challenge, Kuzas and Posner. And it was the first time I learned, oh my gosh, there's a whole way of thinking about this that's underneath all of what I've been witnessing for four years. I was in a leadership role and I was just captivated. I was captivated, right? In a very different way, your story resonates. Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. I heard your podcast with Jim Kuz and very much enjoyed it. And it took me to go back to his website and look at some of the research he cited again. And uh, I think where that comes from is a real interest in and a concern for the predicaments that individuals find themselves in when they're trying to make things better and take an initiative, take a lead. And I think my perspective was not so much on the individuals as on the shared circumstances and the political opportunities. And the people were so diverse in their backgrounds, their languages. We had people who'd been lived for generations in pretty much the same street, together with people who were refugees and had arrived with nothing from with an upturned life, their qualifications and history meant nothing in this new environment and had to reinvent themselves and everything in between. I was a young man in my twenties and I had very sketchy ideas really about how to make sense of all these differences. I certainly didn't feel that I knew how to typify the style or thought patterns of of all these different people. It was was really amazed and intrigued and excited by not knowing what was happening, you know, in a sense, more than having any confidence that I did (laughs) or I could sort it out. Well, you were intrigued. You were intrigued and you were curious, right? Well, yeah. <laughs> I am really excited. I did an episode, probably maybe the third or fourth episode I did with Ron Riggio, and you know Ron. And I just looked at him and I said, okay, so what do we know about leadership? And that's not the that's not the question I'm going to ask you today to get us going, but I want to know what you're thinking about. I mean, 30 years really, really not only having those kind of initial experiences in very complex situations in your community, but then also having now not only engaged in the work, but also done all of the research and all of the writing. What's top of mind for you these days? What are you thinking about? What are you reflecting on? And they might not connect beautifully, but I think just listeners will be very interested in what's caught your attention. Well. I think there are probably two sets of of ideas that I'm tumbling around in my mind and in conversations with people at the moment. And one is about this question of changing systems. It does seem that we're going to have to go through an awful lot of change in the coming years because of the pressure that's on biosphere and on ecosystems, biodiversity, and climate change, and the apparent collapse of the established geopolitical order, and at least the change of that. And we really don't know whether we're going to be able to steer away through this, preserves the current orders of inequality around the world, or these are going to be fundamentally reversed or changed in some ways. I guess most likely it's going to be fundamentally changed. 
and it means that a lot of the us uh, people who are engaged in podcasts like this and these kind of studies are going to experience perhaps for the first time severe turmoil and perhaps loss of the things that we treasure and this throws up a lot of really interesting questions about leadership i think you know when i look around and try to make sense of the leadership that we've experienced in our industrial systems, big companies, governments, and so on. In spite of all the talk about leadership being about change, primarily it's been about continuity. How do we keep this system going? How do we keep the current structures of inequality pretty much as they are to preserve those of us who are now privileged in those positions? And when we look for real leadership of change, we're generally looking at rebellions, revolts, and disassociations. But we're coming to a point where the drivers of change are probably going to be stronger than the drivers for continuity. Mm. Uh, in that context, we don't have so much experience in, well, you know, the privileged world, but there is, of course, a lot of experience around because many, many other societies have been bullied and destroyed and collapsed and for all sorts of reasons. And we can look to them and people who've been through that or are going through these sort of disruptions for learning on, on how things have gone. So I'm very interested in how we can think about what will become of the things that leadership depends on, trust in institutions, individuals, a shared idea about what counts as good behavior or, or good values or aims. Leadership is very associated with ideas about greatness. We like to look to some individual leaders and to movements that represent our cultural notions of greatness. And the tragedy of it is really that these qualities of greatness are often those that bring about the destruction of that system and all that structure. So there are all these questions really about ending of an established order that I've grown up in and what will come of that. Well, you know, you you are making me think of a few things. So I've been reading, I don't know if you're familiar with Ray Dalio's work, Principles for Dealing with a Changing World Order. Ray was the founder of the world's largest hedge fund and spent decades working in China but is just an incredible thinker. He loves economics, he loves history, and he's fascinated by kind of what he calls the big cycle. He calls it the big cycle. You know, we have the Dutch and, you know, everything's backed up by the Gilder, and then we have the British and everything's backed up by the pound, and then we have the US and everything's backed up by the dollar. And what are these big cycles that it's not just, it's it's countries kingdoms, dynasties, you know, and he goes back to like 500 BC in China. I mean, he's he has studied this and it is a fascinating listen. But he, in his cycle, he has six stages and he thinks the US is in a late stage five of kind of this cycle. So you have that. And then the listener, Gary Lloyd, he shared a book with me called The Coming Wave. And this was written by one of the co-founders of DeepMind. And have you seen the film AlphaGo by chance? So AlphaGo was the story of DeepMind was founded in the UK. It was acquired by Google. 
And they were the folks who developed the AI that beat the human being in the game Go. And of course, as you think about the game Go, allegedly there are more potential moves in the game Go than atoms in the known universe. And they built the artificial intelligence. There's a wonderful film for listeners called Alpha Go. You can go on the internet. It used to be on Amazon Prime. But it's the story of these individuals. Well, he just developed a book called The Coming Wave. And he's talking about this digital disruption, artificial intelligence, but then also biotech and how, how these technologies are being democratized in a way that is going to produce a great deal of change. And then, of course, you have Harari, you know, 21 Lessons for the 21st Century, or, or Sapiens, you know, his books about these kind of macro, just seismic shifts that we at least have to have our eye on. And of course, you're, you're bringing into perspective the sustainability, the environment, those shifts that we're already seeing in a number of our weather patterns. So it's a very, very interesting context that we are in right now. Very interesting context, right? Yeah. It's worrisome. It's exciting. It's scary. Oof. It's, it's the emotion of everything. What's that word? <laughs> Might be overwhelmed. Yeah. <laughs> Overwhelming. Yes. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I've, I've been thinking in that context about systems change and what are our assumptions about how systems change. And involved in the leadership development world as I am, I come across many, many leadership development programs, of course, deal with this context and generally say it is complex. There's a difference between problems that are simple or problems that are totally chaotic and those that are complicated. And then those that are complex that have uncountable origins and uncountable consequences and uh, that there's no sort of linear cause and effect chain to influence. And the general conclusion of that is that because of that, we might as well just start somewhere, start doing something mm. and follow the thread as we pull it and, and do what we can and hope that we meet up with other people who are pulling similar threads and combine and make some change to the system. And this is a perfectly reasonable and understandable kind of theory to hold. But it does mean that it reduces action to the things that an individual can do. That's practical, because if you're running a leadership development program and you've got three months or six months or 18 months, you say, well, here's a project, make a start and see how far you get. And if people come across difficulties or political obstacles or something, they can stop or go around them. And that's relatively safe because they haven't actually committed themselves to changing anything in particular. They're just pursuing a problematic of some sort. But not all systems, I think, are all that complex. Mm. So, for example, a transport system involves some complexity, but it's also pretty clear that, well, with a little bit of regulation and some investment in infrastructure, we can make the transport system much better. Yes. And similar with food systems, there's a lot of complexity around weather and politics and all sorts of things. But also we know that if we reduce the sugar and we improve the fiber and reduce the amount of ultra-processed food, people are healthier and they can spend less of their money on feeding themselves and so on. And those choices and options can be made more 
cost-effective and accessible and uh, reliable than other things by some good policy and coordination and regulation. That's not complex. It's yeah. politically difficult, but it's, it's not complex. But it, those are not the sort of things that could be done by a kind of heroic leader or an individual pursuing their own interests. This requires organization and more of a kind of sort of campaigning and even bureaucratic forms of, of organizing and influence. I think that difference exposes a set of assumptions about leadership that's built into a lot of leadership development programs that is all about the entrepreneurial individual, which if you want to define it that way, fine, but that's not about actually changing our systems or not the systems that matter. Hmm. If what you want to do is change the systems that matter, you've got a lot of other things to do and different kinds of leadership. Actually, management is probably at least as important. And then there's a, another way of framing this, which is that in any big system like the food systems, there's a lot of initiatives taking place. Many people are campaigning for organic agriculture, for increasing biodiversity, for rewilding, for better terms of trade, and changes in diets, taxes on sugar-rich drinks, and so on. Big progress is being made in a lot of those. And quite possibly that with a, a bit of coordination across all of those changes and by pinpointing two or three key campaigns, one might really be able to tip the food system into something much healthier for people and for the planet. And that's the kind of perspective that campaigners, uh, and there is a leadership involved in that, of course, and a community organizing kind of role in that. And a lot of role for academics like you and I to analyze what's going on here and let's identify really where one might make an impression. But that's not really the kind of action that most leadership development programs foresee. They, in fact, are very careful to not be political. Whereas if we are saying we're going to change our systems, that's going to be political. So I think the leadership development industries are boxing themselves in to a small and, you know, kind of irrelevant corner, really, by their focus on the entrepreneurial individual. Yeah, you know, and so it's interesting because, you know, to go back to the Kuz and Posner, I mean, you have their thinking about this in kind of like an organizational context, not always, but a community context and an individual and kind of quote unquote normal circumstances. I don't mean challenge me if you disagree with that. And some of the I've been thinking a lot about this lately you know, Greta Thunberg or uh, Malcolm X or Larry Kramer in the LGBTQ plus community in the early 80s when HIV wasn't even being acknowledged by in the United States, Ronald Reagan or Anthony Fauci. You have this activist mindset of we're going to get the attention and we have to get the attention. And it's a totally kind of different approach. It's a much more assertive and aggressive form to get on the radar and to make others aware. It's interesting, and I don't know how to put this in words, Jonathan. It's they're all they're all approaches, they're all tools, but it's gonna be very, very are, are you intentional? It's almost like, you know, the to your point, the simple, complicated, complex, chaotic kind of framework, the the Snowden and Boone, you know, it requires a different approach. It requires some different intentionality around how I'm entering this space, depending on the type of problem. And I think our leader development probably doesn't 
equip people for these different types of contexts. Does that make sense? Yes, I think that's exactly really what I'm what I'm trying to get at. And, and in so doing, I don't want to downplay or sort of belittle the importance of great leadership. Sure. I mean, day to day, I'm working in Intel, you know, middle manager, and I need to be successful in building my team. That's a context. Some of the the types of things that you're working on where, you know, it's that there's a lot of complexity. It may take a different approach or a different way of thinking about how we develop leaders or how we develop skills. I, I think about that sometimes because if you look at it, just even the, the simple Snowden and Boone way of looking at things, it requires a different approach to the work given the context that we're in. And to your original comment, I believe the context, there are some seismic shifts, whether it's the technology, whether it's some of the environmental dynamics, whether it's some of the digital dynamics. But even, I mean, as I'm listening to the Coming Wave book, which again was written by one of the individuals who developed DeepMind, who is now somewhat concerned about where this could go, right? The second order and third order effects of what some of these technologies might bring, it's becoming a little more chaotic. Yeah. No one can control it. No one can. It's just spiraling and barreling forward. So not only do I see the, the context as being somewhat complex, but a little bit chaotic in that, and he calls it the containment problem. For some of these innovations, they become very, very, very difficult. You're not going to contain the printing press, <laughs> right? It wasn't yeah. containable. It just went. <laughs> and, you know, about the only innovation that we've somewhat contained is, you know, nuclear weapons. But that even, and he goes through a, a series of examples of, of near misses and close calls of, of that technology going south very, very quickly. And obviously, there's a larger existential threat of that technology, but the context feels like it's shifting, for sure. Opening up to the yawning possibilities of of catastrophe, as as well as some kind of slightly bizarre opportunities for dematerialization or planetary escape or something odd like that. Oh, I mean, yes, for sure. You know, it's. As, as some of these technologies are democratized, there's great good in that. The problem is, you know, every tool that humans have invented, we've weaponized somewhere along the way from the stick on. <laughs> yeah. The fire to the wheel yeah. to, you know. And so that that's the shadow side of this innovation and some of this, some of the good that can be created. It's overwhelming. It's overwhelming to think about, for sure. And, and what do you think, Scott, should be our stance in relation to leadership, what we're studying, developing, teaching. Well, Kellerman, in a really nice way, she calls it her leadership system, the leader, the followers, and the contexts. And I, and I don't know my sense, push back if you disagree, my sense is that we as scholars have not spent enough time in that context, context space. What does that mean? And you used the word complexity earlier. I mean, that is an area where I am very, very limited in my understanding of that domain of the literature. I've had a couple guests. I've had Mary Olbean and, and Willie Donaldson talk about his book, Simple Complexity. But I, I believe we're going to have to have a much stronger understanding of that domain of scholarship. And I don't, I don't necessarily experience it that way. I think 
back to Snowden and Boone's framework, if you look at Kuz's and Posner's work, and, and again, push back if you disagree, and, and Jim, call me if you disagree. <laughs> but it seems like, you know, leadership in some of those, like a middle manager, you're in more of like a complicated context. It's more complicated. That's kind of where your work is situated in that space, which is important and it's real. And for some of these global leaders who are now facing complex and chaotic in some ways, especially as we have the increase in numbers of catastrophic events from a, a natural standpoint, that is going to disrupt and upend some of the norms. And then again, you add in the digitization, some of the geopolitical forces that are shifting, like with BRICS, just it's it's a very, very fascinating space. And so I don't, what do you think? Do you think we know enough about leading? Um, I think that we know enough about our own experience to divine what might be some of the challenges we have to deal with in finding within us our own authority to take decisions, to make alliances, to choose what we think is right or wrong in any circumstance, and to make the trade-offs where we have to. And some of those aspects of self-awareness are to do with a sense of our idealism. One of those ideals, the sense of good, of truthfulness, and of beauty that we want to hold dear to. And we know that costs of compromising too much on those by reflecting on our own lives. Yes. And quite often, I think those reflections on the compromises in life and times where we've been successful, the times where we've been unsuccessful in life, reveal a kind of tragic humility that are likely to, to put off what we know to be the priority for the sake of more immediate benefits or necessities. And those are perfectly justifiable. I, I can think in my own life when I knew I wanted to bring peace to the world, but in order to bring peace to the world, I'll just take this job and the company car and the mortgage because I've got a family and all those things to do. But I, I'm kind of still on my way. And then all of a sudden, it's 40 years later and the world is still in conflict and I still haven't paid my mortgage off. <laughs> <laughs> so I think this very sort of human embodied frailty is a really important place to come back to in thinking about how we are really going to cope with the mm. difficulties ahead. And one of the areas I've been starting to look at in my current research, this question is around leadership in contexts of defeat and collapse. Mm. I, I think there has been a bit of a tendency to associate leadership with triumph. Yes. We're really interested in the people who won the war, but those who led the communities that were defeated, we pay less attention to. I mean, perhaps the US South is an exception to that, where mm. leaders of the defeated South are still revered by many and studied but I, th I don't think that's true in, in many cases. And even that phenomenon is quite interesting to think about, that, as it were, resisting admitting defeat is a good thing or a bad thing. Mm. Probably the good or bad is the wrong way to think of it. We'll do as they do. But if you, if you think about South Africa, and we 
understandably rightly lord Nelson Mandela for his the leadership he showed in the transition in South Africa. It's also the case that F.W. de Klerk led in a way the defeat of his own constituency, he and others, but particularly him, in a manner that enabled continuity from one order of things to another. And I think it's quite a remarkable feat, really. And there's much to be learned from that. And, and if we look at other kinds of transitional transitions through defeat, and they're always much more complicated, of course, and can be summarized in a few words now. But mm. at the end of World War II, it was Admiral Dönitz who was uh, inherited from Hitler the, the command of the, of the Wehrmacht and the German forces and signed the surrender, which legitimized defeat, created the political context for Adenauer to take up uh, civilian leadership and then of course, it's much more complicated than that, and not everybody did admit it then, nor have they now. But it's enough. It was enough to start again with something, uh, even, of course, at great loss. So I think that many of us in our communities and countries are going to face the equivalent of that, not necessarily military defeat, but it could be that, but defeat by the forces of nature or by, you say, technological changes that will simply make many of us irrelevant. Well, uh, yes. I mean, I I think of communities in the United States, a couple communities come to mind. So my my grandparents were in Fort Dodge, Iowa, and all infrastructure is gone. Not all. That was an overstatement. A lot of the plants that were open in the 60s and 70s, a Hormel plant, for instance, is gone. Or communities in Ohio, like Lordstown, Ohio, where we used to produce cars and now, you know, 15,000 people, that community has lost kind of a, a large chunk of its purpose, its reason for being, its livelihood. And those, I mean, those are dramatic. That is digitization and globalization in many ways, right? I mean, that's what's going on. That plant moved to Mexico or that plant is now being completely irrelevant and you know the the product is being produced in China and i think that's a shift and that's a contextual shift and i think the us has gone through that in in the last few decades that that seismic shift i know it's happened elsewhere in the world also it's amazing it's really really fascinating to watch and then what that does to those communities and for the individuals in those communities purpose hope stability and it creates this just ripe opportunity for destructive forces. Yeah. You mentioned hope, you know, and that's often cited as, well, we must have hope as if it's a kind of moral injunction that we must be hopeful. But in those kinds of circumstances, what part does hope play? Mm -hmm. Well, we got really deep. (laughs) Well, I think think these, these are questions that, you know, as you're saying, they've been around for decades in many communities in the U.S. and all around the world, and more and more they are. And my colleague Sasha Maher in New Zealand has been working on what's called managed retreat, which is the policies that governments and local governments will have to address when communities become unsustainable. For the kind of reasons you're saying, it because of industrial reorganisation or because of uh, climate change and rising water levels or 
weather patterns and simply can't be kept going. And so she's an anthropologist and she's done some fascinating work on how different sub communities, subgroups within a community make sense of the unsustainability of what's coming. And, it, and it's a huge range you know, from those who say, oh, well, okay, I'll go somewhere else to those who simply don't believe that this can end because it's been like this for generations and we've always been here. And whoever is saying it must be and must have some ulterior motives that can't be believed and it's just because they want to save money on the water drains or on the infrastructure, the transport or whatever, and everything in between. And she looks at how these attitudes around trust, sense about the future, around time, around nature, because it, it's at that level of concept people become fixed in their position. And it's at those levels of concepts that things have to change if they're going to retreat managed uh, and, and allowed to be managed so that it's not totally chaotic. Yeah. And that word trust is so, I mean, it, he talks about this in the coming wave. He says that, you know, so much of our society is built on this inherent trust that we have and absent that trust, it, it gets to some pretty interesting places. And one of the things I'm trying to do in the face of all of this thinking is to launch a series of programs and courses around what I'm calling One Planet Leadership, which I'm thinking of as, firstly, an awareness of what it looks like to be taking responsibility as a citizen or as a manager in very different circumstances. Because it's kind of hard to know what it's like for other people, especially as travel becomes more expensive and harder to do and our carbon footprint makes us more reticent to do that. But of course, we have other technologies that allow us to meet and connect with other people. But the question is really the framework and the processes for really hearing what it's like and not just assuming that because it's, because I think climate change is the most important thing. Does it mean that even somebody doing the same job as me in Sri Lanka, for example, sees it the same way? So these. Uh, one planet leadership programs. I'm, I'm setting up some for e experienced managers, people mid career or later in their career who have a lot of experience to look back on and current responsibilities and dilemmas that they're holding and dealing with, which will be informed and enriched by sharing those and comparing them with their peers in other parts of the world. And I also want to set up a program for full time students who are at a stage of their life where they're thinking, well, what am I going to do? Where am I going to put my energies in life? Where will I make a living and make a contribution? Which will do the same thing, plug them into interactions with people from around the world, their peers and other parts. And so I'm, I'm, I'm listening to any listeners to this podcast find themselves moved by that same impulse. Uh, I'd really like them to get in touch and, see if we might uh, collaborate. And Scott, I hope you can put in the show notes some links to some of those initiatives. I will. I will for sure. I just have great respect for your curiosity and for your goal to connect and for people to get together and have dialogue. And had Margaret Wheatley on recently and another gentleman named Mike Muscolo, who's at Merrimack 
And both of them are working pretty intently on how do we create opportunities for dialogue across different perspectives to build that shared sense of understanding. And I, I will put that in the show notes for sure. So we are, we are close on time. That, that just means we need to talk again because we went really, really, really deep very quickly. <laughs> but I'm so excited to potentially meet you a little bit later this fall in, in Copenhagen. I hope you will Indeed. be there. I will definitely be there talking about some of these things. Oh, I'm very, very excited. And, and so we will do this again, please. But I want to make sure that I'm always asking guests before we kind of wind down. Well, first of all, do you have anything else you want to mention before we wind down? Well, I, I'd just like to say that in all these difficult times, those people who are thinking about it are not always thinking about it in the sort of grandiose terms I've been using here. Quite often, one's mind turns to thinking about you know, your own family or background, just like you told the story of your family somewhere in, and where was it, Idaho? Iowa, you know, yeah, Iowa. Iowa. And you think, oh, there's that. And it sort of opens up a space in your heart for them. I could see you reaching out to them with your heart, almost, empathy for them. And I think this is so well, it's important, but it's also beautiful. It's a, it's a beautiful part of humanity that we do that when touched by these difficult times. And I've found that there's some people taking time out to write about that is really fruitful and creative and great fun. I, I've been hosting writing retreats for many years now, and I, I think there's a turn happening in these writing retreats now where people are doing exactly that. I'd love to hear also from you more at some point and, and from others, maybe listeners who are to whom that resonates, see if we might extend some of those possibilities. Mm. Well, and I will put, because I know that you have some of those retreats on the docket, right? There's some yeah. future ones that are yeah. planned. And so I will make sure that we, that we place those into the show notes as well. Another outlet, right? Another outlet yeah. in a community for people to connect, engage, and then produce and make sense of where their passion lies, right? And it could be in any number of different streams of what we've discussed and others. But what has caught your attention recently? What have you been listening to or reading or streaming? It could have something to do with what we've just discussed. It might have nothing to do with what we've just discussed. But is there something that you think might interest listeners? Well, I read in my reading group, Vanessa Dolivela's Hospicing Modernity, and it's mind-expanding, soul-expanding book. Hmm. The first half of it consists of a number of sort of thought experiments and exercises where the reader is encouraged to go for a walk and think about this and then come back and read the next bit. Oh, wow. And the second half is some very stimulating and challenging and intriguing arguments about the effects of modernity and what kinds of roles one might play in the transitions we've been talking about, which she frames as the, the death, the ending of what we've come to know as modernity. I didn't really know. I recommended it to the book club uh, because I'd heard of it from other people and found it a really, really interesting and stimulating read. Uh, but I didn't know what my fellow members would say. And 
as we started the meeting, people sat very stony-faced, and I thought, oh, my goodness, <laughs> have I recommended the book that nobody likes? But one after another, they all said pretty much the same as I've just said. So I strongly recommend it to people as a read that will take you somewhere different. Awesome. Okay. Hospicing Modernity. I will put that link in the show notes as well. Well, sir, thank you so much. The first of future conversations. Can't thank you enough for your time today. Thank you very, very much. And thanks for the good work that you do all around the world. Very, very much appreciated. And I just, I'm, I'm very, very thankful. Well, thank you, Scott, for the opportunity and for the good work that you do with this podcast and many other things. And your <laughs> lovely children who introduce it. And... Okay, well, be well, sir. Thank you. See you later. I am just so thankful for the opportunity to speak with Dr. Jonathan Gosling. I just really, really enjoyed that conversation. You know, there's three books. Barbara Kellerman talks about the leadership system, leaders, followers, contexts. And there's three books that really just stand out for me. Yuval Harari's 21 Lessons for the 21st Century, Ray Dalio's Principles for Dealing with the Changing World Order, and The Coming Wave, Mustafa Suleiman, one of the founders of DeepMind, helping us make sense of some of the macro forces that are impacting our world. And of course, there's a number of others. We talked a little bit about climate change and I don't know and have not read enough about that topic. So listeners, if you have a suggestion, please feel free to reach out because I would love to better understand that space. But there's these large forces, shifts that are occurring, and that will impact leadership. Jonathan, thank you so much for the conversation. For all of you, thank you for engaging. Thanks, as always, for checking in. And together, we can better make sense of this thing called leadership. Practical wisdom for me, keep your eyes wide open and learn. You have just finished another episode of Practical Wisdom for Leaders with Scott Allen. To contact me, visit www.scottjallen.net or send me a note at scott at scottjallen.net. I can also be found on Twitter and LinkedIn, so let's connect. Now, if you have feedback, I'd love to hear it. And as always, thank you so much for listening. One final nod to our sponsors, the International Leadership Association and the Bowler College of Business at John Carroll University. And now, here's Kate's twin sister, Emily, with the outro. You've been listening to Phronesis, Practical Wisdom with Scott Allen.